Well, good morning. How's everybody doing today? Good weekend so far? Excellent. You guys are awake, which I really love. And think, uh, look at outside. I mean, it's August, and it's like this. This is awesome. I'm looking forward this afternoon. I'm going to take a short nap, and then I'm just going to go for a walk. You know? What's so funny about that? How many of you guys are going to take a nap this afternoon? Admit it, right? Okay, three of you. Yeah, and the other five, 15 of you are lying. But seriously, it is just so beautiful to see the world that God has made around us and just seeing him in the beauty of nature around us. We're going to talk about that in a little while. But for those of you who I haven't had the opportunity to meet yet, my name is Clay. I'm one of the pastors here, and it is great to see you here this morning, especially if today is your first time at Renaissance. We are really thrilled that you have chosen to be with us this morning. And as Kim mentioned, we'd love for you to stop by our guest center on the way out and uh, they have a gift for you. They would love to meet you and answer any questions that you have. So uh, again, we're excited to have you here. And if this is your first time, or if you've been away for a while, uh, we are in the middle of a series that we're calling Hashtag Winning. And we're looking at what Jesus has to say about what it means to be successful. And our world defines success in one way, and Jesus defines it in what is often a radically different way from the way that uh, our society defines success. And we're looking at the first part of Jesus' most famous sermon that we know as the Sermon on the Mount. And we're looking at the first 10 verses or so of this sermon. And in that, Jesus makes eight different statements that we know as the Beatitudes. And each of them starts off with, blessed are, and then he goes on and he talks about a particular character quality that we as followers of Christ ought to be exhibiting. And as we grow in that character quality, God is blessing us in various different ways. And today, we're coming to the sixth beatitude. And here, Jesus says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Let me ask you a question. Why do you wake up on Sunday morning, go through all the hassle of getting the spouse and the kids ready to go to church, pile everybody in the car, pile everybody out of the car, climb up 15 flights of stairs, you know, come into the auditorium and sit and stand and sing and listen to a message and etc.? Why do you do that, many of you, week in and week out? You know, why is it that we come to church? Different people come for different reasons. Some people come because they like the music. Others come because there are people to see or they themselves want to be seen. They want to get to know some new people or see some old friends. Uh, some come to uh, worship God. Some come out of, you have to admit it, guilt. You know, if I don't come, God's going to zap me. So maybe there's a little bit of fear in that. Obligation, because it's the right thing to do. I'm not exactly sure why it's the right thing to do, but it's an obligation that I have. I go to church, you know. Um, I go because I want to get to know God better. And I think with that last reason there, all of us at some level want to connect with God. We believe that there is a God out there 
and we want to get to know him better, and we have a feeling that coming to church is a way that we can do that. And whether you're just starting off in your relationship with God, maybe today is the first time that you have been to church ever in your entire life. And from time to time, there are folks here who that's the first time that they've ever been to church. And I love meeting folks like that just to get their impressions and see what it's like for them and how they're experiencing it. And so maybe you're just starting off in your spiritual journey. Or maybe you're kind of coming back. You used to go to church. You grew up going to church, but you haven't been inside a church in 10, 15, 20, or more years. Or maybe you've been a follower of Jesus your entire life and you can't remember a time when you didn't love God, where you didn't want to get to know him better, where you didn't want to worship him, where he wasn't a part of your life. So wherever you are on your spiritual journey, all of us want to, or at least ought to want to, be growing closer to God, be getting to know him better, be developing that kind of an ongoing relationship with him. And our beatitude this morning, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. That applies to all of us, and I want to show you how as we're, as we're going through that. Uh, so the basic idea here, when Jesus talks about seeing God, is not so much physically seeing him with our eyes. Although the Bible does talk about that those of us who are followers of Christ, when we get to spend eternity with him, we will in some sense be able to see him with our physical eyes. What Jesus is talking about here is actually deeper than just seeing him with our, our physical eyes. It's seeing him spiritually. It's getting to know him. It's developing a relationship with him. I've had the, the privilege or the opportunity uh, throughout my lifetime of being able to see three different United States presidents. Years ago, I got to see Ronald Reagan in the Flemington Fairgrounds. This was back in, I think, 1982 or so. I got to see him at the Flemington Fairgrounds and kind of look at him and listen to him speak. And then a few years later, I got to see the first President Bush uh, when I was living in Dallas and he was there speaking, dedicating a new uh, children's home or something like that. And so I was able to go, that, go there and see him. And then uh, some years later, I got to see President Clinton when he spoke at uh, Princeton University's graduation. Unbelievable speaker. I was just blown away by what an amazing speaker President Clinton was. So I got to see three U.S. presidents, but I didn't really get to see them, if you know what I mean. I saw them with my eyes, but I didn't see them as in getting to be ushered into their presence and get to meet them, shake their hand, talk with them, get to know them, develop a little bit of a relationship with them. My, my wife, Anne, and my daughter, Christine, are down in Charlotte this weekend, and they, are go they went there in order to see my older daughter, Sarah. They didn't go down there to see her with their eyes, although I'm sure they're enjoying seeing her with their eyes. They went to see her because they wanted to spend time with her to continue the relationship that they have with her because she's important to them and they're important to her and, and, you know, and, and so on. The same is true in our relationship with God. When Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God, yeah, we'll get to see him with our eyes, but we get to see him. We get to have a relationship with him both now 
but also ultimately for eternity when we get to spend uh, really all of eternity with him in his presence, getting to know him. The Apostle Paul, who wrote uh, much of the New Testament, writes about this a little bit in a book called 1 Corinthians. And he says, For now we see only a reflection, as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I'll know fully, even as I am fully known. Now we see him. Now we, we get to, to know God some here on the earth. We can develop a relationship with him, and we're going to talk a little bit about that in, in a while. But Paul says it's just a reflection. It's just a preview. It's just a shadow of what's going to happen then when we get to spend eternity with him. So there's this now aspect of developing the relationship, and then there's the then aspect, which is even better. And so we want to get to know him now in anticipation of getting to spend eternity uh, with him forever. So I was asking myself this week, you know, as, as I was preparing my message, why is it that we would want to see God? Why would we want to get to know God? And I thought, you know, and, and a number of different things came to my mind about that. Who wouldn't want to get to know the creator of the universe the one who, in the song that, that uh, we were just singing, the one who made the heavens. And you look up at the stars in the sky and you say, unbelievable. I get to know the one who made the stars. I get, the one, get to know the one who made the plants, the animals, the trees, the mountains, the streams. I get to know the creator of the universe who's not just some engineer who made these things, but who's creative in unbelievable ways. The infinite variety of shapes and colors and smells and sounds and all the different creativity that he's shown. Or how about I get to know the most powerful being in the universe. I get to know the one who knows everything there is to know and is willing to share some of that knowledge with me. I have a great relationship with my wife and with my daughters and I know how much they love me. I get to know a God who loves me even more than my wife and daughters love me, even more than I love them, whose love for me is infinite, whose unconditional love, who forgives me over and over and over again, who's never too busy for me to come and see him, who never walks away from me, who never says, nope, that's it, I'm done with you, who's there all the time who's always ready, who's always available, and who wants to have a relationship with me. And those are just a few of the reasons why we would want to get to see, why we would want to get to know uh, this, this God of the universe. And a passage, one of my favorite passages uh, came to mind this week as I was chewing on this. And it's in the book of Revelation, which is the last book of the Bible. And if you've ever tried to read it, you know it can be a pretty challenging book because there's some kind of funky imagery that's going on in there. It's hard to understand, and so many people read the first few chapters and just say, forget it, I'm not going any further. I can't figure out what all these different things are. But you miss so much if you don't read it. So let me encourage you, take some time someday, read the book of Revelation, don't get all caught up and getting lost in all the imagery, just kind of get what's the main idea of what's going on and what is God going to be doing there? Because there's some 
unbelievable gems there. And one of them is found in Revelation 21, right near the end of the book. And uh, the apostle John writes, and he says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. Kind of strange, a little different. Why isn't there any, any sea? I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. I mean, at this point, I'm like, what's this city coming down, and what's all this? And I don't fully understand all of those details of that, but what I do understand is there something pretty amazing and pretty awesome going on here that God is going to be doing in the future? And John is trying to describe what's really indescribable because he as a human being like the rest of us has never experienced anything like this. So he's trying to describe what's impossible for him to describe and just give us a preview, a glimpse, a picture of what may be going on in the future. And then he says, and I heard a loud voice, and this is where it gets really cool, a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. God is going to be with us. We are going to be with him. There's not going to be this physical separation. Yes, we who are followers of Christ have the Holy Spirit living with us within us absolutely that's absolutely true but john's saying it's going to get even better because god himself is going to be with us dwell with us we're going to get to be with him we're going to get to see him we're going to get to have that face-to-face -face relationship and he goes on and he says he will wipe away every tear from their eyes there'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. It's different. It's the way it ought to be. It's the way God designed it to be. We live in a broken world. There's not supposed to be death. There's not supposed to be mourning. There's not supposed to be crying. There's not supposed to be pain. There's not supposed to be cancer. There's not supposed to be heart disease. There's not, you know, and on and on and on. And John says, that's all going to change. No more mourning, no more crying, no more death, no more pain. And that's the kind of environment in which we're going to get to live with God for eternity. And as I was chewing on this a couple of weeks ago, this passage, I saw something that I had never, I'd seen it, but it had never really registered before. And look what John says. He says, that he, God, will wipe away every tear from their eyes. He is going to pick up the tissue and wipe the tears away from my eyes, from your eyes. He's not some distant God who's kind of looking down from heaven at an aquarium full of fish and saying, oh, that's interesting, I've seen them swim around for a little while, now I'm going to go look at something else. He doesn't see us that way. He wants to be intimately involved in our lives. He cares about the pain that we go through. He cares about the tears that we shed enough that he's going to stop and take the time to wipe them away for himself. Why would, why would I want to get to know a God like that? Why wouldn't I want to get to know a God like that? A God who cares 
that much for me. So we get to see God. We get to be with him. We get to develop that relationship with him. And Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart because we get to see God. What does he mean when he says the pure in heart? There's a couple of ways to look at this concept of purity. One would be to see it as there's no impurity. Someone who is pure in heart doesn't have any impurity in their heart, kind of like uh, pure gold, doesn't have anything else mixed in with it. You know, dross, uh, even silver, which is another precious metal. If you want pure gold, you don't want anything else in it. You want all that other stuff taken out. The same is true of our hearts. A pure heart is a heart that's free from all the garbage that we struggle with on a day-to-day basis. It's, it's free from the sin. It's free from the jealousy. It's free from the anger. It's free from the lust. It's free from the conniving. It's free from the manipulation. It's free from all that garbage that we hate in other people. And if we're honest with ourselves, we hate it in ourselves as well. And Jesus is saying that the more pure our heart is, the more we're going to get to see of God. The more that that junk is gone from our hearts, the more that we're going to be able to see God. And that's one way of looking at it. And Jesus, uh, later in the Gospel of Matthew, he's, he's kind of excoriating the Jewish religious leaders for not having pure hearts. And he says to them, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and the dish, and then the outside also will be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you're full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Jesus is saying this to the Jewish religious leaders, to the people who ought to have had the purest hearts, who ought to have had the hearts that were most in tune with God's heart, who ought to care even more about what was going on inside than they did on the outside. But they were so concerned with their external reputation, they were so concerned with what people thought about them, that they were neglecting to look inside and realize the outside didn't match the inside. And so Jesus says to them, you're a bunch of hypocrites. And being a hypocrite is not the way to see God. So one way of looking at this idea of having a pure heart is is a heart that is free from sin and all the junk that we struggle with on a regular basis. But another way of looking at it is to see the heart, a pure heart, as a heart that is exactly what it was designed to be. Pure gold is gold that doesn't have any impurities in it, yes, but it's also gold. It's also this yellow, shiny, beautiful, precious metal that is gold. A pure heart is a heart that is exactly what God designed it to be. And he designed our hearts 
to be just like his, to be in tune with his, to desire nothing more than to know him, to love him, to worship him, to serve him, to follow him, to be satisfied in him. So a pure heart is not only a heart that isn't encumbered with all of the garbage of life, it's a heart that wants God more than it wants anything else and a heart that's in tune with God's heart, that sees the world as God sees it. Jesus, uh, at one point in the Gospel of Luke, has another interaction with the Jewish religious leaders. And Luke writes, he says, on one occasion an expert in the law, again another religious leader, stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What's written in the law? Jesus replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. What's it mean to have a pure heart? Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Because that's how God designed our hearts to be. To love him completely and fully. That's a pure heart. A heart that wants nothing more than God. A heart that is satisfied and is fulfilled in God. And that's what Jesus is saying. And the Apostle John goes on and he writes uh, about this idea of having a pure heart. And he says, see what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that's what we are. We know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. And all who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. We have this hope. We're looking forward to seeing Jesus and being like him. And when we are with him, and the more that we see him and the better we know him, the more our hearts become like his. And if you've been married for more than you know, six months or so, and you've got, if you've got a good marriage, you know that the more time you spend with your spouse, the better you know him or her, the more you become like them. I had, uh, I had dinner last night with a couple who's been married for just a couple of years, and they were just kind of laughing about how they're really beginning to complete one another's sentences, and they know one another's thoughts as they're thinking them at the same time. It's just cool to see them becoming more and more like one another. And the same is true in our relationship with God. As I spend more time with God, as I see him, my heart becomes more and more and more like his. And I love the things that he loves and I hate the things that he hates. And I see the world and I see the people around me with his eyes. And when people see me, they see me as being more and more like him. So part of this idea of purity of heart is having a heart that is completely in tune with God's because that's what he created us to be. So let me give you several different practical ways in which we, as followers of Christ, can grow in purity of heart. First one is, ask God to search your heart. Ask him to show you what's really going on in your heart. And all of us, if we're honest, realize our hearts are not where they ought to be. They're not where we want them to be. They're not where God wants them to be. And sometimes we need 
an outside agency to show us the deceitfulness of our own heart. We think our motives are pure. We think our motives are right. But then, you know, again, if you've been married for any length of time, you know your husband or your wife can point out to you a whole bunch of blind spots. And they wouldn't be blind spots if we could see them. God does the same thing. So we need to ask him to search our hearts. And King David, who was uh, one of the greatest kings of Israel in the Old Testament, he writes in Psalm 139, he says, Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. You want to know a prayer to pray in terms of how we can become more pure in heart? Pray that prayer. Search me, God, and know me. Test my heart. See if there's any offensive way in me. Show me the impurities in my heart. And then lead me in the way everlasting. And David, in another psalm, in Psalm 51, he asks God to purify his heart. And that's the second thing we can do. As God shows you the junk in your heart, ask him to purify your heart. That's a prayer that he wants to answer. And David writes, and he says, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit in me. And David's writing this in a psalm where he's confessing his sin to God. And he's saying, God, forgive me for my sin and then create in me a pure heart. And he goes on and later in the psalm, and he says, don't just, don't just get rid of the junk that's in my heart, but give me a heart that desires you. Give me a heart that overflows with praise to you for how great you are and wants to tell others about how wonderful you are. So David's saying, purify my heart. He's saying, search me and show me the junk and then clean me up so that I'm going to have a heart that's more and more in tune with yours. The Apostle John writes similarly in 1 John. Uh, it's one of the letters that he wrote, and he says, if we walk in the light as he's in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and he's just. He'll forgive us our sins, and he'll purify us from all unrighteousness. John is saying, come to the light. Let Jesus shine the light of his truth on your life and let him show you where you're falling short, where you're falling down, where you're not obeying, where you're doing things that he said not to do, where you're not doing things that he said to do, where your heart is not right. Let him Show those to you and then confess. Say, God, you're right. I've messed up. I've sinned. I've disobeyed. I've fallen short here. Please forgive me and please cleanse me and please purify me. And this is a promise. We don't need to be concerned that God is going to reject us. We need to come to him and say, you already know all the junk that's going on inside of me. So I confess it to you and please forgive me and purify me and give me that heart that wants you above all else. So search me, purify me, come to God and ask for his forgiveness. And then recognize the obstacles. Recognize the obstacles to a pure heart. On the obvious end, there's sin. You know, the things that we do that we know are wrong, that are displeasing to God. But one of the challenges is that sin isn't always obvious because sin is deceitful. And sin makes promises 
that it's never really going to keep, but it gives us enough of what it promises to keep dumb people like me coming back for more because I think, well, maybe the next time I'll enjoy that more, you know, and it gives me just enough to keep me coming back for more. It makes me think about when I was a kid. Uh, my mom used to give us on uh, Easter these great solid chocolate Easter bunnies, you know, and uh, we would have this Easter egg hunt in the house and she'd hide stuff all over the place. And the last thing that she would find, and I never figured out until I was older, how come it was always the last one that we would, how, and how do you always find the Easter basket with the Easter bunny in it last? And uh, when I became a parent, I realized that that's, you know, there's a way to make sure that that happens if you're a little bit faster and smarter than your kids. So always there would be this solid chocolate Easter bunny in the basket along with the plastic grass and, you know, and that kind of stuff. And I always loved breaking off the ears and eating that, and I'd save some for later, and it was a lot of fun and that sort of thing. And then one year, it couldn't have been my mother because my mother would never do this, but it must have been one of my friends gave me an Easter bunny, a chocolate Easter bunny, but it was a little bit lighter weight, and I didn't think anything of it at the time. And then you know where it's going with this. You bite into the thing, and it's hollow, you know? I mean, it's an empty shell, and, it's, and the chocolate isn't nearly as good as the other chocolate. It tastes like kind of a combination of, of Captain Crunch and the box that Captain Crunch used to come in, you know? It just, there was something wrong with the Easter bunny, but I kept eating the thing, and the next time that I got a lightweight Easter bunny, I ate that as well because I'm thinking, well, maybe it's going to deliver. Sin is like that hollow chocolate Easter bunny. It promises a whole lot more than it delivers. And yet I, and you, but I am stupid enough to keep coming back for more even when I know that it's hollow on the inside. And I've got to continually remind myself to watch out for the deceitfulness of sin. I also need to be careful of good things. My job, my family, my hobbies, my sports that I enjoy doing. All sorts of things. And there's nothing wrong with those things. Absolutely nothing. Those are good gifts from God. They are good. But if I'm not careful, they will distract me from what's the best. They will distract me from God. And rather than seeing them as gifts that God has given me and thanking him for those gifts and enjoying them in light of my relationship with him, they take the place, the gift takes the place of the giver and I get distracted from my relationship with the giver. And if you were here a couple months ago when I shared about my burnout from last year, that was a large part of it. I got distracted by good things, took my focus off of God, and my heart, rather than being focused on the creator, was focused more on some of the good gifts that he had given me. And it, for me, resulted in, in hitting the wall and in burnout. I need, we need to make a conscious effort to continually return our focus to God. Thank him for and enjoy the good things that he's given us, but don't let ourselves become too distracted by them. Another way to grow in purity of heart is to look for God. 
We've got to actively look for him. Look for him in nature, in the world around us. In Psalm 19, David writes, and he says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth and their words to the ends of the earth. Stop and smell the roses. Take a look at them. Look at the stars tonight in the sky. Look at the, the landscape around you. Look at the animals. Pretend you're a little kid. You ever watch a little child seeing like a squirrel for the first time or playing with a dog and just, you know, watching the wonder as they're exploring God's creation. They may not understand it as God's creation, but the wonder that they have. We need to stop and smell the roses and enjoy the beauty that God has given us because as we enjoy what he's given us, it can point ultimately to him and his unbelievable creativity and his care and his love and his power and so on. So take the time to look for God in nature. Look for God as well in Scripture, in the Bible. Paul writes, All Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable or useful for teaching, rebuking, correction, training, and righteousness. God didn't pick up the pen and write the Bible, but he worked in the hearts and the lives of the people who wrote the Bible so that it's effectively as if he did. It's, as Paul writes, it's God-breathed. It's not a textbook about God. It is a book from God to us with the goal not just that we know about God, but that we know God and we can see him in the pages of what he's written. So as I'm reading there at the end of the book of Revelation and I see He's going to wipe away every tear from my eyes. I think that means God is a compassionate God, and I'm drawn to his compassion and his love and his mercy and his care and his intimate involvement in my life. So take the time to look for God in Scripture. And then finally, draw near to God. Don't hesitate to come to God. Don't be afraid. In the book of Hebrews, the author writes, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain, that is his body, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart, with full assurance that faith brings. So often we're afraid to come to God because of the impurity of our hearts. And the, the writer of the book of Hebrews says, don't be afraid. Come to him with full assurance. Why? Because he is the one who is cleansing our hearts so that we can come to him without fear. So come to him. Confess your sins. Thank him for the good things that he's done. Tell him how much you're enjoying the beauty of the creation. Talk to him about the things that you're reading in the Bible and ask him to show you new things and to help you to get to know him better. Ask him to help you to see him more and more and more so that you can develop more of a heart for him and more of a heart like his because that's what he has for each of us. That's what he wants to do in our lives. I want to close 
with a great passage from a very small book that some of you may, ne may have never even heard of. It's, it's the book of Jude. It's one of the last books in the New Testament. It's only 25 verses long, but the last two verses are just an awesome uh, benediction or blessing that the author writes at the end of his book. And he says, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ, our Lord, before all ages, now, and forevermore. Amen. He says to him, to Jesus, who is able to present us to his heavenly father, pure, clean, and with great joy. To him be glory, majesty, dominion, power, authority, now, in our lives now, but forevermore, for eternity. That's the kind of God that we have. That's the kind of Savior that we have, who knows that we are not capable of cleaning ourselves up on our own, that we can't purify ourselves. So he is offering to do it for us if we simply trust in what Christ has done on the cross. And as we do, whether we're just starting out in our journey of faith or whether we've been followers of Christ for years and years and years, we need to keep coming back to him over and over again and saying, God, I've messed up. Forgive me, purify me, and let me see you. Let me grow in my love for you. Let me pray for us. Father, it's an amazing thought to think that you, the creator of the universe, love us enough that you're going to wipe away every tear from our eyes yourself. And I thank you for the privilege that we have of seeing you now and for eternity. And I thank you that you are working in each of our hearts to purify us, to clean us up so that we can see you more and more and better and better. And I pray that we would, that we would surrender to you, that we would follow you, that we would turn our hearts to you. And as we do, shape our hearts to become more and more the way that you designed them to be. Help us to a just enjoy the love that you have for us and then to show that love to those who are around us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, thanks for coming out this morning and I hope you have a wonderful rest of the weekend and we'll see you next week.